This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Marissa. And we're going to talk about The Man in the High Castle by Philip K. Dick, a novel from 1962. And I think this was my first ever Philip K. Dick anything. Hmm. Might not have been, but it's certainly my, I'm pretty sure it's my first novel. Uh, Paul, is this your first? it It is my first Philip K. Dick novel. I, I had read a couple stories of his, then then started with the novels because this one had won the Hugo Award, and then I started diving into other ones. Marissa, was this your first as well, or? Uh, no, no, I'd read a few before I read this one, but I kind of I kind of rush read it when I read it because it was at a friend's house, mm. so um, it was good to hey, read it again. Book that happens in the book, right? Does it? Yeah, uh, Juliana Frank. Is- oh yeah, yeah. Rush reading. Yeah, yeah. Grasshopper lies heavy. Uh-huh. Did you ask uh, how it ends? <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, so why don't we start with that? The book within the book. The actually it's one of two books within the book, right? The The Grasshopper Lies Heavy is one of the books, and then the other one is the the Book of Changes. I think, yeah. Which, which uh, as far as I know, is completely real. Yeah. Um, it might be the book that we're within. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think Philip K. Dick got really into it. Well, yeah. Well, uh, uh, in this early sixties or, whatever. but um, I don't think re- reading the segments from the Grasshopper Lies Heavy that are within the text, I don't think it's a novel at all. I think it's more like something that uh, Olaf Stapleton would write. Yeah, I got that impression too. There wasn't much of a story. It was more like a characters. Yeah, like an alternate history as well. Yeah, uh, um, Olaf Stapleton's are like future histories. I mean, I guess they read as alternate histories as well uh, while you're reading them now, because they talk about sort of the times we're living in. But uh, yeah, the grasshopper lies heavy. Is is it's like a. It's not really a novel, mm-hmm. that's what I can tell, which is interesting. Unless we just didn't get any of the novel bits. <laughs> yeah, but like, uh, there's like, you know, it's just a history of, you know, what the Americans do and what they... Yeah. And we, I, I guess we get that in this book as well. We, we sort of know what the Japanese have done. We sort of know what uh, the Nazis have done. Um, it's interesting. Have, have either you read For Want of a Nail? Mm-mm. It's no. a it's it's a it's a book by the historian Robert Sobel and The Grasshopper Lies Heavy, which now now I've read I read Want of a Nail after after uh, The Man in High Castle, but now that I've re listened to Man in High Castle, now I can see how the Grasshopper Lies Heavy is really a version of For Want of a Nail. Or what For Want of a Nail is. Kind of almost like a textbook alternate history of the United States if the Battle of Saratoga had gone to the British and the British had basically quashed the American rebellion and it describes about from, from, from the 1770s to the 1960s of this, of the, of the alternate world that plays out with the British having quashed the American rebellion. 
That's what the grasshopper lifesaver feels like to me. Mm-hmm. It's 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 a basically the defeated members of the uh, American Revolution basically go to Mexico and basically create a American-like state in Mexico, whereas the British just keep otherwise chopping across North America. So in this world, you wind up basically having Mexico and and the United States and Canada basically fighting with each other for and feuding and developing and growing and changing and some really weird things like this company that takes over Taiwan and invents the atom bomb. It's it's a very odd, strange alternate history. And the only thing I don't like about it is it has no maps. Otherwise, it's a very mm. detailed look at what this timeline would have played out. And it's not a. There's no story. It's just like a textbook. Kind yeah, of. It, 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 I, I described it when I wrote a review of it years ago as, as if it was a textbook from this world that had fallen through a crack into our <laughs> world. Huh. That's what the grasshopper so, feels like to me. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like you would have to be really into history to be able to read textbooks on fake histories. I, I at the time I was really deep into alternate history, which is why I picked huh. up the picked up uh, the man in the high castle in the first place because. Hey, alternate history. This is right. alternate history. I like it. And yeah, I turned out to be much more than I ever expected, and wind up uh, hooking me into into Dick and it being a characteristic Dick and it being an alternate history. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I. Uh, it's interesting because I think that Dick, you know, he says in the acknowledgments, you know, he makes great use of or much use of the rise and fall in the Third Reich and. History of Nazi Germany by, you know, it's a very famous book. My parents had a copy. Uh, I guess it's actually, it might even be two volumes. I can't remember. Maybe three. Um, and then he's written, you know, Gerbil, oh, he's read Gerbil's diaries and the, you know, of course, the Tibetan Book of the Dead and, mm. you know, poems. And he's done a ton of research. Um, and I know, uh, I've heard some interviews with him or read some interviews, um, that he, well, at the time was really into jewelry as well. His wife wanted to make jewelry. So this is very much, I think, sort of uh, taken from his life. Yeah. Uh, I read, um, as usual. I've got that wife's book that I've brought up before and she, uh, and she's saying that the jewelry stuff is exact of their life. Like he, he literally mm-hmm. made that the silver triangle symbol and polished it up and mm-hmm. he went to try and sell it to stores. So that's all him. Oh man, yeah. that that scene I think is one of the most horrific, soul wrenching scenes. I, I I bet most people don't feel that way, but the scene where, um, uh, Ed goes to the, uh, uh Archil Dan store. Oh yeah. <laughs> and he's sitting there trying to sell the stuff for hours. Yeah. Oh yeah, I was really uncomfortable reading that. <laughs> that was the most horrific, soul churning. Embarrassing, yeah. <laughs> horrific. I want to jump off a bridge. Oh my god! Scene there is. I I worked retail, uh, both ends, um, and uh, I did my best. But basically, if you if you're like our children, you'll do better. <laughs> it's funny because children is kind of horrible in a lot of ways. He's like racist and and horrible. But it's that scene that makes me really like, ah, oh, this guy is awful. <laughs> he is a monster. Yeah, you, you think and he yet, would just throw him out of the store, but say he just lets him basically sit around there and yeah, spend <laughs> hours for nothing. 
Look, he's still standing there. Yeah. It's, oh my god. Oh, so horrific. Um, but there's this thing that uh, this book. I was asking, you know, if this is your first book. I f- I feel this is like as the least Philip K. Dick book I've read of his. Mm-hmm. Um, it has all the elements that we. It, you know, I was even thinking, oh, well, there's not a lot of boobs in here. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> true. Huh? And, but then, <laughs> but then, right? It comes in. It's still there, and our chill Dan, uh, when he goes to uh, Paul and Betty's house, oh, there's a little bit there, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it has, uh, you know, okay, maybe there's not that much coffee, right? Uh, I bet there was some some coffee in there somewhere. But, yeah, it feels like it's just a little bit different. But I think one of the things that's so magnified in this book, and maybe it's the most magnified of any book I've ever read, and I think it might be why this book is so powerful, is that we spend almost the entire book inside the heads of just a few characters. Mm-hmm. And we're so close to their soul, as it were, that uh, it it's powerful even when the people, and they generally are, they're just not great human beings, mm-hmm. but we kind of are sympathetic to them. Like, I'm even sympathetic to Art Dan, even though he's, he is basically one of the worst kind of human beings I would never want to spend any time with. Yeah. Uh, he, 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 is he also, this is a question. Who's the main character of this book? Or if there is one? Yeah, I don't think there is. There's so many plot lines going on at once. There's like three or four, isn't there? Oh. Yeah. So Juliana, we see inside her head. Uh-huh. Art Dan. Um Baines. Mr. Baines, yeah. And so Frank. Frank, yeah. Mr. Tagomi. Mr. Tagomi, right? And do you notice how little interaction there is between these characters? Like Juliana never meets up with her husband again. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Art Dan uh meets up with uh Ed, but not with uh Frank Frank. Yes he does. Mm-hmm. Does he, does he, make, he doesn't know it's Frank. No, that's not Frank who. Oh yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. Right, yeah, you're right. You're right. You're yep, right. It's, it's Frank who right, goes right. in and uh, tells him the gun. But we made. don't know it's Frank when we're reading it. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like this guy shows up. Oh shit. Oh, this sounds interesting. But th- but then a little down the so, line, we realize oh, it was, and, and it's his real. Oh yeah, it was Frank because because Frank says I can't go in the store with you because he'll recognize me. And by that point, uh, as after a certain point, we realize yeah. That that was how they got the money, um, which I think that's a pretty clever move on Dick's part. But uh, yeah, I mean, this is a very interesting and powerful book in many, many ways. But one of the ways that it's way more obvious to me now uh, is that everybody is fake. Or has a fake personality or a fake alternate mm. name. Yeah. Or how did I, I was making a list. Um, and I think, well, what about this person, right? They don't have a, right? So Archil Dan, right? Um, one of the most interesting things about him, he, he's, a, we start off the book with him and he seems kind of like he, he doesn't have another name, right? But our Chil'jan is not Robert Chil'jan. 
Exactly. We find out later that the R stands for Robert. But he, when he when he talks and when he's thinking, his speech pattern is not American. No. It's oh yeah, Jap- he's like the it, chameleon. Kind yeah, of. It, it's it's Jap it's Japanese trying to learn English. It's just like, yes, children said eagerly. Listen, sir, I have a mural from WPA post. Office period, original, done on board, four sections, the kicking horse grizzly, priceless collector's item. And it's just looks like there's lack of pronouns, there's lack of structure. It's, I, I, it, and when we switch to other points of view, we get much more fluid English. It, I mean, Dick is a very much a chameleon in putting us into mm-hmm. these characters, especially Childan, thinking in these different ways. Yeah. So Childan is, is, when when he meets with Paul and Betty and they want to understand the authentic American experience through novels, he can't help them. Yeah. Yeah, well, it seems like all of his thoughts, everything he thinks is based on the people around him. Like, he's just constantly soaking up whatever the people around him want and trying to be this, yeah, someone trying, who's not. Trying to supply so, it to him, yeah. Yeah. Then, uh, then... There's Paul and Betty, right? Mm-hmm. Who are not really Paul and Betty. That's not their names. Paul and Betty Kurosawa? No, uh, I can't. I, 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 Kasura? I can't remember. Sounds about right. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's Kasura. Kasura. So, yeah, so Paul and Betty are more American than he is, mm-hmm. which is weird because they're from Japan. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they're they're more uh, sympathetic. They're not as racist as he is, even though uh, he 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 doesn't want them to be the way they are. But he can't he can't re- he, they want to connect with him. They can't connect. Um, uh, Juliana, she is a f- judo instructor who's a fake judo instructor, right? She says that she's used it many times, her self-defense skills, but never had. And when it comes to using them, she uses a knife mm-hmm. instead of a... Yep. And uh, I, I think this is true of every single character, even like um, Hawthorne Abinson, right? He is a liar when he's talking about how he wrote his book. Uh-huh. Um, and his name, I think, is really, uh, it's interesting. I looked it up. Did you see that? I tweeted you guys. There's one person in the United States named Hawthorne Abinson. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is ridiculous. But um, <laughs> we know where he lives. <laughs> in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Yeah. In the High Castle. Um, I think that uh, this is Heinlein for... Dick, and also it's Dick himself, of course, but it's it's really interesting, and I, I had this impression, I think, the very first time I read the book, that that Hawthorne Abinson was Heinlein, hmm. but it's not exactly what he would normally write anyways, but it's sort of how I imagined Heinlein, because uh, he's got a wife, but he doesn't have a kid. Um, in real life, Heinlein never had any children, um, but in the book, uh, Dick's given him a kid. Yeah. The house is described. Uh, Heinlein lived in Colorado at the time. Um, Cheyenne's not in Colorado, but it's very close to it. 
and it's sort of similar terrain. But the uh, the interesting thing is the house is pretty much as it's described in the book is actually the house that Heinlein actually lived in. Hmm, interesting. I I, and, I knew they knew each other. I think at one point Heinlein had loaned Dick money. Yeah. So I I I, I went through and got the details here. Um, we don't know when exactly that happened, but Heinlein apparently owed money to the IRS. This is not something that only happened once. Um, uh, he lent, so Heinlein apparently sent him a check in the mail without even knowing that, you know, having Dick ask him, um, and said, uh, pay me back when you can or something to that effect. Um, and Heinlein, the same year as this book came out, wrote another book called We Can Build You. And the dedication in that book reads like this. To Robert and Ginny Heinlein, whose kindness to us meant more than ordinary words can answer. Aww. So they are definitely, uh, they were kind of friends. And the other thing that's interesting is, uh, Dick is also the man in a high castle today because he's buried in Colorado, Colorado, even though he never lived there. Uh, I did not know. I did not know that. Where is he buried in Colorado? Do you know? He's, yes, I do. He's buried at, uh, Fort M- Morgan, Colorado cemetery called Riverside Cemetery. Wow. Um, and his, he, he's buried beside his twin sister. Um, he never lived in Colorado. He passed through it a few times. Oh man, I I wish I had known this in 2013 because I drove past Fort Morgan to get the day. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I would I could have totally stopped there. Yeah, I, I I drove right past Fort Morgan going going west to Denver. Like, damn. Mm-hmm. I'm, so I'm why... disappointed. I would... Next time you're passing through, mm-hmm. do you know why his sister is buried there? Well, yeah, yeah, I pretty much figured out. So Dick, remember Dick and Dick's mom, Dick's mom and dad broke up, uh, got a divorce, and remember Dick moved to D.C. with his mom. Uh-huh. His dad moved to Colorado eventually. Uh-huh, um, he worked. He was uh, working for uh, some agrarian, not not agrarian, agronomy. Uh, I don't know, American government program or something so he's moving around a lot and he ended up in colorado uh, okay um i guess that's where they decided to bury the uh the sister and then when when dick died in uh, 82 or whenever it was his father uh flew to or went out to california to take the body back right. to colorado which is it's strange because he never lived there right that's that's ne- that was never really his home, so he is in a sense the man in the high castle still. Wow, wow. <laughs> um, the other uh, dedication I thought was really awesome is the dedication to this book. Did you guys see it? Which... It's not in the audiobook. No. I don't think it's hilarious. It reads to my wife Anne, without whose silence this book would never have been. I written. know. Oh wow. <laughs> She's not very happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, I don't know what it means. <laughs> wow. Shut up, let me write. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Writing. Oh, oh man, I, I think that's hilarious. Feels like a little, yeah, I don't know what he's trying to say there. <laughs> I think it's pretty clear what he's trying to yeah. say. 
Um, it's funny because she's telling, she's saying in the story that because she was running that uh, jewelry business, he started getting really involved and he started sort of taking it over from her. He got really excited about it, as he does about everything, I think. Right. She basically shut him out and was just like, get out of my business. Like, you're not, mm-hmm. you're not playing anymore. And I think he was a bit sulky about that. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Might be a little bitter. Now this is this is a there's another I got a lot of notes here. Um, I I if you guys have something, just jump in. But I mm-hmm. want to ask this. I've been asking this question to myself and looking for evidence for it all over the place forever. I should probably just read all those books that Dick says he consulted for this one. Yeah, go ahead. Um, but. Uh, this is a line from Childan's mind, uh, and I just thought this this sounds like it's true. I don't know if there's no evidence that it's true, but sounds like it's true. Um, so he says, or he thinks they're out of their minds. Childan said to himself, "Example, they won't help help a hurt man up from the gutter due their to due to the obligation it imposes. What do you call that? I say that's typical. Just." What you'd expect from a race that, when told to duplicate a British destroyer, managed even to copy the patches on the boiler as well as... (laughs) So, we know in the late 19th century that the Japanese were like, we got to become a European-style power. But I think that that this might be the most fascinating fact from this book, if it is a fact, that when given a chance to measure every inch of a British destroyer that the Japanese exactly copied it down to, and I, maybe I read it in some other book that they, they copied it down to the, the stamp on the boiler that says made in uh, Aberdeen or whatever it was. (laughs) Wow. Even to the patches on the boiler, right? The holes, (laughs) the, the, the 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 damage that's been fixed has been, even been copied, wow. and it's like that. Is this true? Is this a true fact? Paul, have you heard of this? I I don't know how true it is. It it has the plausibility of of fact, but I don't know. I I don't know the uh the actual story well enough to know. Couldn't find any evidence that this is true in all the years I've been looking. It's oh, so interesting. But that it sounds like, I mean, it, it is so much about sort of what this book is about, which is, you know, uh, think of all that time spent in the beginning of the book on the objects, right? The, the pistol that Mr. Tagomi has, mm-hmm. um, or wait, maybe not the one that Tagomi has, but the one that Childan has, right? Um, and the ones that, uh, Ed and, um, Frank are making. Mm-hmm. Those those fake pistols are real pistols. They work just as much. And there's a scene where one character is showing another character two lighters. One of them was owned by Lincoln or something. I don't know. It was Lincoln or somebody Roosevelt. famous. Roosevelt, right? Uh, so th- what Dick does in the meditation on you know what makes something historic or historically interesting mm-hmm. <laughs> right um is that it has this provenance attached to it this story that goes with it yeah i love that scene yeah because that's one of those superstitions we have 
Absolutely. Like, even if you're not superstitious about anything out at all, anything else at all, you kind of have this feeling when something has got history attached to it that it's really, it's got some kind of power. Or, yeah. For that, it was really there. That's uh-huh. the real thing. Not, not a, not a replica. It's the real, it's the real McCoy. Yeah, you feel it. <laughs> you, you can feel something. Yeah. But it's in your mind. And yet, yeah, so the one with the scratch is the one that's the legit one, but I don't know that I believe that. And even if it's true, they both do the job of lighting, right? Mm-hmm. If if Mr. Tagomi's uh, Civil War era revolver can stop the, uh, you know, the SD men or the Nazi thugs coming through the door, then why why isn't it a Civil War revolver? Just the mere fact that it has been in existence longer as that form of metal mm-hmm. uh, make it real. I think this is sort of, this is Dick's theme for the whole book, but it's also the theme that he is always engaging with, right? In every book, mm-hmm. that the world yeah. isn't real and what makes it real. And one answer is to look at it and say, look, we have this stuff that has been around longer than we have and that it has... Uh, there are actual facts of history hmm. that this person was alive and these events happened. And yet when you read this book, the answer in this particular case is uh, no, all that stuff can be true and it's world's still not real. And even in the function of the, the, these historific objects, we, we still can't find that historific, truth Truth. Mm -hmm. right that's why that's why when at the end uh hawthorne abinson he's afraid to ask the question that juliana comes there to confront him about when she asks it it's confirmed i think dick believed at least during the writing process that that he had discovered this truth as he probably did in every book right about the world and then moves on and finds another truth about the world that's pretty much the opposite but i i think that that's where the real power of the this book as opposed to any of the other novels that he's written i think this is the most powerful in that way it's very strangely metafictional to find out that you're you're a character in a story which is what basically juliana and abinson basically find out Mm -hmm. that that they're they're they are they are fiction and and tagomi for the brief, I mean, well, let's assume for a moment, let's assume this for a moment, Tagomi for the briefest of time escapes the, the metafictional world and comes into our own. Mm-hmm. In, in that scene in the park where he contemplates the, uh, the one true, that little piece of jewelry, it's a true object mm-hmm. and it brings, it's genuine. it's genuine, it's new, it doesn't have historicity and it's able to briefly transport him into the real world, into the real state of affairs, and he hates it. He wants to go back. Yeah. He, he think, he think, he, I mean, the, 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 San, the San Francisco that he goes into is full of cars. It's got the freeway blocking the view. The Japanese are not on top. He hates it. He, he wants to escape. He, he looks at, he looks at our world as a nightmare. So what does that say? Mm-hmm. Uh, In fact, all the characters seem to think it, our world would be terrible except for maybe juliana i mean yeah i mean i mean the distorted thing, way they think our world would be i.e the through the grasshopper lies heavy is a depressing 
two world cold war between the US and England and England wins being authoritarian and thuggish under Churchill. That's not, that's not a happy world either. No. Um, have either of you read Cyril Cornbluth's Two Dooms? Mm-mm, no. But, uh, it's, uh, I, I understand that it's similar. It is. It, it came, it, it's a novella came out about 1958, I believe. So I'm almost certain Dick re- read it. The, the basic plot of it is it's set in the 1940s and they, and a uh, physicist in uh, New Mexico working on the atomic bomb, he's kind of uh, unsure whether or not he should be doing this, whether we really need the atomic bomb. So he goes to a tribal shaman, and in a very weird ceremony, he transports himself into a future where the U.S. has lost the war, and the U.S. is divided between the Japanese and the Germans. So he mm. spends a, ma- a fair amount of time wandering through this alternate broken U.S. I mean, you wind up in this little... T- I mean, the, the west coast of the U.S. is flooded with uh, basically Japanese, Chinese, South Asians. He winds up getting married, of all things, for a little while, living in a small little town with a Indian wife. He gets captured by the Germans. He goes to Chicago. And, there's, and they're very interested in him because they think he has secret Jewish magical power. And so <laughs> he finally goes back finally manages to claw back to our world and he thinks i have to work on this bomb this is the right thing to do because the world if we don't is too terrible to contemplate so i'm certain dick must have thought there's an idea and i can write it better and well i'm going to make a wild guess that besides me talking on this podcast none of the listeners who listen to this mm-hmm. have ever heard of two dooms but mm-hmm. i write i write it in a book of alternate history short stories and I've connected the two intimately ever since. Mm-hmm. I think, Mercy, you were going to say something uh, before I interrupted, and then Paul. Well, did did you uh, recall what that was? No, I can't remember. Oh, okay. <laughs> I even was. Okay. Um, I I there's a scene that I think is repeated uh, with a bunch of different characters throughout the book, uh, or at least a a feeling that I get while I'm reading the book that I think is, is repeated. Uh, so do you guys remember when Mr. Baines is on the airplane? Oh, sorry. <laughs> Not airplane. The rocket. The rocket. Oh, yeah. They've been flying, I guess, from the east coast of, uh, maybe, maybe they came all the way from Europe, um, to San Francisco. And beside him is the, the, uh, straight up Nazi guy. Yes, Yeah. Lots of, yeah. Um, so I, I, I like took the entire text. I, I, I want to read it out because I think it's really interesting. Go for it. Okay. So, uh, oh yes, that's so. But racially, you're quite close for all intents and purposes the same. So this lots of is just, um, said, you know, oh, you're Swedish? Well, mm-hmm. that we're just the same, right? Um, uh, lots of began to stir in his seat, getting ready to unfasten, unfasten the elaborate belts. And then this is all inside of uh, Baines' mind. Am I racially kin to this man so closely that for all intents and purposes, it is the same? Then it is in me too, the psychotic streak, a psychotic world we live in. The madmen are in power. How long have we known this, faced this, and how many of us do not know it? Not lots of perhaps. Perhaps if you are... 
insane, then you are, uh, or perhaps if you know you are insane, then you are not insane, or you're becoming sane, finally. Waking up, I suppose. Only a few are aware of this. That's, that line is, repeats over and over in the book, mm-hmm. especially at the end, Juliana, right? When she's going to talk to, um, her author hero, Hawthorne. Um, I suppose only a few are aware of all this. Isolated persons here and there, but the broad masses, what do they think? All these hundreds of thousands in this city here, do they imagine they live in a sane world? Or do they guess, glimpse the truth? I can't find it, make it, make it clear. Do they ignore parts of reality? Yes. But it is more. It is their plans. Yes, their plans. So what he's talking about there is not clear. And then suddenly, the conquering of the planets, something frenzied and demented as was their conquering of Africa and before that Europe and Asia. But their view, it is not cosmic, not of a man here, a child there, but air abstraction, race, land, Volk, uh, Volkland, Blunt, Era, not of the honorable men, but of Era itself, honor, the abstract is real, the actual is invisible to them, die Gute, but not good men, this good man, it is their sense of space and time, they see through the here and now into the vast black deep void beyond the unchanging and that is fatal to life because everything sorry eventually there will be no life there was once only the dust particles in space and hot hydrogen gases nothing more and it will come again this is the interval ein augenblick the cosmic process is hurrying on crushing life back into granite and methane the wheel turns for all life. It is all temporary. And they, these madmen, respond to the granite, the dust, the longing of the inanimate, and they want to aid nature. So at this point in the book, we're like, wow, he really hates these Nazi guys. Mm-hmm. He is a fucking Nazi, right? Am I, am I wrong about this? Hey, um... But he's talking like he's not one of them. At this point in the book, we don't know that he's a Nazi. And yet he's saying these things like distancing himself in his own mind. But yeah, then later but, on, we know he is. But, but he's also Jewish. This, yeah, and in this alternative world. He is. Well, he, he says that to us, uh, say, say to that, uh, he says that to the guy, but I don't think that's something you even even to unsettle him that he would lie about because that's just such in this world such a dangerous thing that I don't think he'd even try that. Well, I, I'm pretty sure he's not Jewish. I, th- I think he said that to get kind of a revenge. Yeah, I think that was a lie. But um, the other this this effect happens there. I'm, I tried to find it. I couldn't find it before. But this effect where a character is introducing, we're introduced to a character. They do something, and then they become what they really are. Mm-hmm. Happens again and again and again in the book. And, and the strongest one, I think, is with with Joe. Joe Cinadella, who we never learn the real name of, right? Right. Mm-hmm. He is an Italian who becomes an SS Nazi Aryan, uh, you know. Assassin, yeah. Hitman, yeah. Um, but 
at one point in the book, Juliana is looking looking at how he's acting, and and she senses he's becoming something. I couldn't find this, but she senses he's becoming something. And then I think this is when it's being written. Dick is sensing he's becoming something too, his genuine self, whatever that is. And then he suddenly is no longer Italian. He is Nazi. I don't think at the beginning of when we meet Joe that he is a Nazi hidden. He's a hidden spy, right? I think he is actually an Italian. And that when he is converted, that that conversion was not a revelation of something that was hidden before, but rather it is a change. What? So you're Wait. saying it's so you're saying it's uh, transformation, not revelation. Yes, and that that you know the fact that he, so when when you see if you look at the story Joe's story and say okay these are all the words that he said to this woman right Juliana who we know a lot about but we know more probably about Joe Cinadella than we do about Juliana. We know how she feels about a lot of stuff. We know a little bit about her from her husband. But Joe tells us more about his family, right? We know he has two brothers. Uh, one, one or more of them is dead. I can't remember if both of them are dead. Um, they're strangled. Yeah, I think they're both strangled by uh, that. He has a sister or something. Uh, we know what kind of music he likes. If this is all an elaborate provenance a, a cover story right the fact that he's spilling it all to this woman who he really only needs to get close to hawthorne Avinson for one night um it's it sounds really convenient you know that he's dumping all this information but i i think that dick didn't have a particular thought in his head when he started writing that character that he was uh, going to be a Nazi spy, a Nazi assassin. I think that he became that in the process of writing. Oh, I see. So uh, you're saying he became it as Dick wrote, but not. you're not saying like in the book that he... I think it's both. Or... He basically got written into the process. He, I, 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 I'm pretty sure, you know, I, I know how Dick wrote the book. He wrote it with the Book of Changes. So when, uh, when he doesn't know what to do, he would cast the straws or flip the coins, right? And use that to move the plot of the book along. But I think also that when he starts writing these characters, and there's so many of them like this, where they start off a certain way and then become something else, I don't think, in the same way, I don't think that uh, Baines is uh, a, a, another kind of spy until until that happens until he's transformed into that. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, it's interesting. So, so that basically was changing things on the fly, not not thinking, not laying the seeds like, okay, Joe's going to reveal himself as a Nazi. It's just as he wrote the book, that's the way things but, are. Right, but I also mean that they actually are that way as well. Like I think I, I'm getting the sense that in this world – the playing out of the of reality is underdetermined until the point of its determination. 
So you know how uh, the old uh, well, it's a particle, it's a wave right. um, yeah, thing works. Yeah, part, right? particle wave duality. So uh, you know this, Marissa. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, until you look and measure it as to whether it's a particle or whether it's a wave, it is neither, right? It is, my uncle called it a wavicle, which makes no sense. (laughs) (laughs) Taking two words and breaking it apart. There's a guy, he's doing his stuff, and then when you measure him a certain way, when you throw the yarrow stalks a certain way, aha, the truth is revealed, right? But actually, it's not the truth is revealed. It's that those random casting of the yarrow stalks collapse the wave front or whatever it is right collapse the the meaning made the decision in the same way a schrodinger's cat you know experiment uh shows how quantum physics i see so you... observation determines the reality can you repeat that back so i understand what i'm saying paul <laughs> okay okay so basically you're saying the, these characters are in superposition states yes that they're undetermined until Dick, when writing and when using the I Ching as his guide, basically forces a decision and then that becomes the, the true nature of the character revealed. And only then, until, until then it's not certain, it's not clear, but then things crystallize at that point and we I get, and, and exactly. the truth is, the, the end is not when gone. Dick does it. It's not when Dick does it. It's when the world does it. I know that when Dick is writing it, right. that that's what's happening. Right. But in the book itself, in The Man in the High Castle, these characters are in that superposition, right? That they have not yet. So the, that, that's why when Baines is talking this way, right? We, we, we go, okay, um, Baines is a Swede. He's flying on an airplane. He hates these Nazi guys, right? He is a Nazi. Right? But we don't know that until later on. So actually he's not. That's why he talks this way. And then when he says, I'm a Jew, and Paul says, yeah, he's a Jew. He is for that moment, but he's actually doing that in spite. So that's a lie, right? He says he is, but that's a lie. Because later on, we find out, no, that's part of his elaborate cover. Right? That's a part of his... Uh, he's trying to prevent the destruction of, uh, the Japanese Empire and therefore promote his strand of Nazism, right? Right. And all of the characters are like that. So when, when Juliana first goes to, uh, Hawthorne Abinson's house, he acts a certain way and he says certain things. But those are lies. He, he either deflects, right? He says, when she says, did you use the book of changes? Are you familiar with the oracle? And he, he says no, right? And the wife says, tell him the truth. Tell her the truth, right? Right. Because right. she's sensing something going, there's this fascinating thing is she's a fucking stalker come to this guy's house and she says, I just murdered a man for you. Yes. And, and it's like, holy fuck. This is a, it's a very scary thing. You know, imagine somebody coming to Dick's house, knocking on the door. And I know that this sort of thing happened, especially to Heinlein. Yeah, and although when he, would come to his house. when he writes it in the book, I kind of got this little tone of like that he was almost inviting it because he was kind of like, there's, totally. there's this line in there where he's like, yeah, well, that's totally, you know, 
Which also wouldn't like people to come to their house. And <laughs> Man, it's scary though, right? Because he's he's put himself in a position where everybody knows his address. Yeah. <laughs> um, and literally, there is a Nazi thug on the way to assassinate him. And why is he sent to... Uh, think about this for a second. Why did the SS send a Nazi hitman to kill this guy because he wrote a book that's not how they work that when they invade your country they they put you in the concentration camp they just round up all the authors or they round up all the whatevers but they don't do that they don't send in you know secret they're they're not uh secret agent you know assassin assassins just on the on the on the go it it it, it Makes as much sense as Mr. Baines going there to tell the Japanese about this this plan. Why is he telling Mr. Tagomi? Right? What the hell does that? What does Tagomi? But, 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 but he's not telling Mr. Tagomi. He's t- he's telling the Japanese admiral. Tagomi's just there as a stalking horse, so that when the Japanese see like say, oh, oh so just just as a Swedish industrialist going to talk to the Japanese about trade, and that's why mm-hmm. poor Tagomi is a pawn in this whole. High-level description between the uh, a faction of the Japanese government and the faction of the yeah. German government. Tagomi's mm-hmm. just, just being used that way, and he realizes that, and he's, he's a, much to much to his horror that he's just being really being, just really being a a, ch- a, a chess pawn in this whole thing. Mm-hmm. I, I feel I felt really bad for Tagomi. Yeah, because he he's he's um, kind of the most humane person. Yeah, I, I, definitely. I, I mean, he 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 winds up. He winds up having to host this conference. He he ha- winds up killing with this gun and doesn't quite know what to do about that. He he, he basically has a breakdown. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I, I I mean I I really felt I really felt for the guy. It's like, damn! It's like you didn't do any. None of this is really your fault. You've been trying to do you the right thing all along, and and that's why I was happy to, to remember at the end when he when he does uh, decide to defy the uh, the German. Uh, Ambassador, like, no, I'm going to free this guy. Heck with you. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and much, and I, I love the circular bit of this. The guy he frees and he never doesn't know his name, doesn't have no, has no direct connection with him is basically is Frank Frank, who's the guy who created the object, which he gave to him mm-hmm. that let him see the vision to really see what things going on and basically have that breakthrough. So in a sense, he's paying back the guy. And not even knowing it, I love that little bit of comic circularity to it. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I feel like I have to read the book again to see this thing you're oh, talking look. about, um, Jesse, of imagining the characters changing as they're perceived, kind of thing. Because I I read it differently, like that it was just layers of lies being peeled back, mm-hmm. and that, and I read that um, Baines was. I thought that the Nazi uh, Nazism was kind of just like breaking up into factions, and that he was just representing a kind of change. Mm-hmm. But the faction um, doesn't want what doesn't want a nuclear war. Yeah, they just had just gone further than what we know of Nazism, and that they were kind of like separating into. There, there were actually he's he's actually talking about actual history. The the, the thing is, is I, I there's a lot of technical terms in here. You know, Dick did. 
do a ton of reading. You know, his mm-hmm. he's not one of those guys who says, yeah, you know, World War One was awesome when it happened in the 1920s. No, he knows exactly when everything happened. He's he puts his as much of the interesting stuff in as he can. So he talked about the ab there, right? That's the uh, that's a military intelligence uh, or counterintelligence uh, agency that's from like 1920 to 1944. And then there's the SD. That's another, that's the Nazi, uh, sorry, the SS intelligence, right? There's all these sort of layers of, of uh, Nazi terminology that Dick is using correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we, uh, th- this might've been the first book that I read about Reinhard Heydrich in. There's a ton about Reinhard Heydrich in this book. Mm-hmm. And, he never makes an appearance, right? We, we get Dr. Goebbels on the phone, um, very briefly, but that, uh, rise and the fall of the third empire is all about why they lost the war, right? Basically Hitler did a really shitty job of organizing his, his Nazi system because he had a whole, everybody was competing for power right. in uh, Nazi structure. So, the the fight for power that we're seeing in the book, sort of in the in the news headlines as this novel is unfolding, is the kind of things that were happening all the time in Nazi history, um, in reality, mm-hmm. and so those those fights uh, and those uh, you know the, the the there's a faction over here who wants this and a faction over here who wants that and. Uh, one wants to destroy, you know, one wants to drain the Mediterranean and the other one <laughs> wants to, uh, kill everybody in, um, in Africa and turn their heads into cups, uh, their skulls. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Out. And use their feet for, their toe joints for lighters. Yeah. Right. Right. The, the monstrousness that Dick, um, uh, saw in, in the, uh, this is one of the things he said about why he didn't write a sequel is that, he thought it needed to be set in uh, Nazi, the Nazi part of things rather than the Japanese part of things. Yeah. Right? Thought it was too horrific that it would be too emotionally draining on him. What? And for a guy who is as sensitive to, you know, and sympathetic to getting into the minds of characters, it would be pretty horrific. He he even says something in here about. Reinhard, the, the, not Reinhard Heydrich, but the head of the Nazi, uh, youth was like, oh, he's the, uh, Juliana says that would be her choice for the new, uh, Fuhrer, right? Because he, he sort of tried to rein in some of the excesses. He's the guy responsible for draining the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's, he's the nice Nazi, or <laughs> Sphere, right, was the nice Nazi, right? Because, you know, yes, he did slave labor, but he didn't enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that 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 uh stuff so the political intrigue I think is very true. Yeah. Did you guys read the first two chapters of the No, sequel? I did I did. That that you were you were absolutely Okay, so so as, as uh Mercer kindly sent us the the two completed chapters of the proposed sequel to the man in the high castle and it, 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 it starts, it starts off, we talk, we, it starts off with Goering and talking about, uh, talking about Abinson and mm. expl, explain, explaining about what's going on. There's a character, character Admiral Canaris and they're, 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 and they're, they're basically feeling through their way to the discovery that there are 
there's another world out there and w- how that world came about and why the differences are and what can we yeah. do about we do about it and it they remind- actually go they're going there and they're actually bringing back artifacts from our world yeah. it sounds like a dick novel <laughs> it's, it's it sounds like a dick novel it also sounds it also sounds like a a role playing game um so and, and, and um there's a there's a time travel role playing game that started off started off with GURPS um called uh GURPS Infinite Worlds where there's basically different uh there's a company develops time time and dimensional travel so you can go to different worlds and see different histories and see how things unfold and part of the plot of this whole game is you're not the only world that has this power and one of them is a Nazi dominated world that has recently discovered hey we can go to other worlds and we can we can possibly spread Nazism to other worlds and so this is so they're one of the big bad guys in this role playing game because they're, they basically surgically alter people so that they can transport people to other worlds. It's, and that's what this kind of reminded of like, Oh God, Nazis spreading into other worlds. That's really, really, I would have loved it for Dick to have actually had the guts to actually write this, but I could see why he wouldn't because, Oh God, this, this would just screw with their heads to have to stay in the heads of all these Nazis all the time. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. um, It it also, these two chapters kind of explain a few of the things from the first book as well. If it's, if this this is actually how he was going to write it, because it tells us in there that Heydrich um, sent Joe. Mm -hmm. Right. Right to, to to the meeting. I yeah, Reinhard. No, that that's in this book too. Yeah. Reinhard Heydrich is respond. He's actually kind of of the Nazis. He's one of the better ones because he doesn't want to destroy the Japanese. Yeah, because we're much closer into their opinions in there. And also, did you catch um, that Lotze is also an SD agent? Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they were. <laughs> yeah. There's like little everything weird. everything is is fake and everything is uh has a un a secret inter but inside and and, yeah. and but they know and they they sent Baines to tell the Japanese as well Hadrick sent him and mm. and there's that intimation that you were saying before Jesse yeah, that there are factions within the Nazi state well, because one faction has this dimensional technology and others don't so they're basically Going to have Wagner uh, infiltrate the faction that has the dimensional technology to get a get a hold of it. So it's it's like inter-Nazi factional politics. Internecine <laughs> Nazi factional <laughs> politics. Inter-Nazi. Uh, I get it's really confusing actually. Like I really feel like I have to read this like three times to really uh, it's, track everything because every, everything is a lie and a lie and a lie. And <laughs> there's truths and up. So I as part of uh. Re- re-listening to this, I re-watched that pilot for the uh, the Amazon show that's going to have a series this fall. Did either you do yeah. that? Uh, and I was thinking about not doing it. I decided not to because I, thinking back on it, I realized that it almost has no connection to the plot of this. I have a feeling it's going to be really disconnected from, because if you think about what this book is really about, right? it's about that piece of jewelry and when they show in that first episode um what is the grasshopper's lies heavy sort of equivalent 
the, it's not a book. It's a newsreel film. It's a movie. But mm-hmm. but but my, I, I here's my prediction, and maybe in some months when we're doing another Dick novel, you can say, "No, Paul, you were wrong." My guess is for this series because mm-hmm. because because they talk about in this one episode that it looks always looks so realistic and all this stuff. My guess is that this in this show it's going to be revealed that. Uh, Abbotson does have a portal to our world and he's been getting newsreel from our world. So basically almost taking pretty much have to be right. Yeah. He's basically doing what's in this proposed sequel. Basically there is a portal to another world and Abbotson's got access to it. I would Mm -hmm. love for that because I am a sucker for transdimensional and interdimensional stuff and have been for years. So if, if the series goes that way, sign me on board, but we'll see what happens. But yeah. I don't know. I'd like it to do well because I'd like to spend time meditating on, you know, what's going on in this book. But I have a feeling that it's not going to be connected to. I think it's going to be a little bit too fluffy and light. Um, but uh, you know, maybe it'll be great. <laughs> but it's way better than the Minority Report TV show. Oh my oh. god, that's <laughs> thing about yeah. train wreck. <laughs> There, is it a new? Is it a new thing? A TV oh, yeah. show? It, oh, I already, haven't even heard of that. It's, it's, oh it's man, a, don't! It's, it's, it's already been. It's a. It's a budget. Of, it's number of episodes that have been bought have been already been cut back. So that's a bad yeah. sign oh. that they have no. Oh, it was. Faith a, in it. it was a nightmare from the moment I really gazed <laughs> upon its horribleness. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, the thing is, is you can't really adapt this book. Like I heard that the BBC was gonna do it, uh, you know, this adaptation that we're now seeing on Amazon or whatever. Mm-hmm. That this has been in development for a long time. I I think it's um, uh, Scott uh, Ridley Scott somehow behind it, which is kind of a good sign, right? He's mm-hmm. he whether he likes science fiction or not, he's really good at it. He's done it a lot. But I think it would have to be sort of a BBC low budget. Like I, I can imagine almost, I can almost see it like a late seventies sort of I Claudius version, uh, you know, shot on videotape. They do a very good job with it. You get some great actors. You, I don't know why they would do it in Britain considering it's <laughs> set in the United States, but if they got some really great actors and they got a really good, you know, British writer to write it, it would be, it would be fine. Uh-huh. But I just, the thing is, is you, as soon as you start looking at what this book is actually about, it's about that little piece of jewelry that everybody's contemplating when they see it. And they, they, the, the artists just know it's wonderful and it's going to sell just like Dick knew, you know, that jewelry is so great. <laughs> I think that's the sad yeah. thing in that TV show. There's no the American Antiques thing is missing. Like the yeah. well, because they want they, they say they want to, but yeah, the the, uh, the owner says no. It's not nobody wants that stuff. Go back to work making your guns. So so, so there's just that brief mention of it. Mm, maybe but it'll come in. Maybe the jewelry. Maybe it'll, come in. maybe it'll work. Um, but. There's this uh, this other thing that happened while I was listening to this, and I wanted I made a big note about it. And yeah. I've got a section to read. Um, I believe it is Philip K. Dick reviewing his own novel. All <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. Um, this, is, this is hilarious because I think it's about uh, what he think 
thinks he is doing with this book. And when I thought of this, that sort of helped clarify as sort of, you know, I don't know, a pair of glasses as to what those transformational scenes are about and what what this whole book as a whole, what what it does to us. He's telling us what it does in this scene, I think. And also, uh, I think he's right. I think that's exactly what it does. So this is um, based on Paul's speech about the pin that Childan gives him to give to Betty, right? The one that at first, when uh, Childan walks into the office, right, he says, uh, "I." The Paul says, I haven't given it to her. Mm-hmm. And we see inside Childan's head, he knows that I want to have sex with his wife. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then, and then he says, uh, yeah, I haven't shown it to her. And, uh, I showed it to some of my friends and you know what their reaction was? They all laughed. And it's like, oh man, Childan, you poor guy, right? What a fool for trying to make this crappy play, you know, trying to get on this guy's wife and oh what a what a monster you are and we feel for him even though he is kind of a real asshole mm-hmm. he's, he's a real asshole but we still feel for him because in this situation he's been m- made a fool and then suddenly those two false hopes you know dashed there's this completely unexpected revelation. And Paul says, you know, I contemplated it. So what I've done here is taken out wherever it says the pin or the object. And I just replaced that with the most appropriate word. So you'll hear. <laughs> okay. Okay. Here is a piece of fiction which has been written until it has become shapeless. It represents nothing, nor does it have design. It sounds like a Philip K. Dick book. <laughs> <laughs> Nor does it have a design of any intentional sort. It is merely amorphous. One might say it is mere content deprived of form. Yet I have read, uh, sorry, I have for several days now read it, and for no logical reason I feel a certain emotional fondness. Why is that, I may ask? I do not know, uh, sorry, I do not even now project into this novel, as the psychological German tests uh, my my own psyche. Uh, so he's saying I I'm not projecting my my own psyche onto it. I still see no shapes or forms, but it somehow partakes of Tao. You see, it is balanced. The forces within this piece are stabilized, at rest, so to speak. This novel has made its peace with the universe. It has separated from it, and hence has managed to come to homeostasis. It does not have wabi, nor could it ever, but this book has woo. The hands of the author, I changed author from craftsman or whatever. The hands of the author had woo and allowed that woo to flow into the novel. Possibly he himself knows only that this piece satisfies. It is complete. By contemplating it, we gain more woo ourselves. We experience the tranquility associated not with art, but with holy things. By this meditation conducted by myself at great length since we last talked about the, <laughs> this is me making a joke. Since we last talked about PKD, I have come to <laughs> identify the value this novel has in opposition to its historicity. I am deeply moved. Uh, to have no historicity and also no artistic aesthetic worth and yet to partake of some ethereal value, that is a marvel. Just precisely 
this is miserable, small, worthless looking book that, <laughs> or worthless reading book that contributes to its possessing Wu. For it is a fact that Wu is customarily found in the least imposing places, as in the Christian aphorism, stones rejected by the builder. One experiences awareness of Wu in such trash as an old stick, a rusty beer can by the side of the road. However, in those cases, the Wu is within the viewer. It is a religious experience. Here, an author has put Wu into the novel, rather than merely witness the Wu inherent in it. Am I making myself clear? And Childan says yes. In other words, an entire new world is pointed to by this. The name for it is neither art, for it has no form, nor religion. What is it? I have pondered this novel unceasingly, yet cannot fathom it. We evidently lack the word for a novel like this. It is authentically a new thing on the face of the world. I just thought that that's wow. so awesome. Yeah, isn't, that, nice. isn't that exactly what he's doing here? Yeah, that's so funny. This book is that piece of jewelry because it isn't historic, right? It doesn't have form. He doesn't know what he he, he didn't write the book himself all by himself. He relied on those those casting of the yarrow stocks. Uh huh. That's so funny. That's so true. The only thing I noticed in there that doesn't fit is that where it says this book is complete because in the interviews and stuff afterwards, he's, think, he's always like, this book isn't complete. I, I didn't. I it. think he's wrong. I think that that's why he didn't ultimately go with the, uh, with the sequel. If you look at Philip K. Dick's work, he almost never. There were so many pieces of writing that he said he almost never did anything like a sequel. Yeah. And that's yeah, not yeah. true of most people, but I think right? He felt, I think he felt he wanted to go somewhere else with this one. Well, I think also if you think about how uh, how Hawthorne Avinson, uh, by the way, I think we could talk about that name a bit more, but by Hawthorne Avinson, this is, his wife says, this is his first real success. And that is also true of this book. That's oh, yeah. true. It's first real success. He gets the Hugo Award for it. Everybody knows that this is the great book. Uh-huh. Massive uh, attention to it. And, you know, that people say, give us more of the same. This is the, this is the book industry as we know it, right? Is yeah. you have a success, you follow up with a sequel. Yeah. But Dick, I think, uh, was pretty wise or were lucky that he was the way he was and i'm not sad and that's why i didn't read those two chapters chapters because when he did try and write sequels and he did try many times often he just wrote different books right yeah well i think that's what happened i think i don't know what the book was but apparently when he tried to write the sequel to this it turned into two other different kind of books there's one um the ganymede takeover i think yeah that's the one that's the one that i mentioned with um with uh, our friend uh, who wrote They Live. Uh, name's escaping me, but uh, it's me there. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So he mentions that's what his attempt at the sequel turned into. Mm-hmm. So I, I I feel like this book doesn't Ray Nelson. Need a, Ray, Ray Nelson, Nelson yeah. <laughs> Ray Nelson, yes. I don't feel like this book needs a sequel at all. I, I, think, it, I think everything that he says or he has um, Paul say about this book is absolutely right. Yeah, that sounds it, really perfect. It is formless. Yep. It is uh, amorphous. It doesn't... I mean, there are a couple of action scenes. You know, Dick's not really well-known for his action, but 
I love this this plotting somehow just gels so well. If you think back a couple of books to the you know, once sort of earlier in his career that we were reading, um his plot when he does apply sort of a, a plot, here's how it's gonna be, I feel it's not as successful as as something like this or So you think the Yixing helped him in this one? I think it really did. Yeah. Um when he's taking it from his own life rather than trying to plot it out, I yeah. think it's yeah. it's better. You know, the other one that's like this for me, um, and I read it much later, uh is the one that turned into a cartoon. What was it called? Scanner Darkly. Scanner Darkly. Right. So Scanner Darkly is very much about his own experience with, you know, breakdowns and drugs and considering himself his own, uh, worst enemy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He's got all that. It's, it's very sort of taken from life. Um, the plot is obviously not exactly because the main character is a cop or whatever, Mm -hmm. but, um, he doesn't act like a cop. He acts like, acts like a, you know, a criminal. And, or at least <laughs> a writer is pretending to be a criminal. Um, but the, the shape of the plot there is much more organic in the same way that this one is. He just sort of starts with a character, gets into their head, and then something happens and he says, well, what's really going on here? Mm-hmm. And there's so many times when Juliana's looking at her, her lover and I just saw oh my god she's saying it right here she's saying it she's you know maybe he's insane right mm-hmm. it is when he when he comes back from that haircut mm-hmm. um she realizes he's colored his hair and then no he was wearing a wig yeah <laughs> she's a great uh, character which, that whole interaction between those two is so good totally it's it's I, absolutely at the heart of of this novel, yep. I think. And when, when we get one of the two major action scenes in this, the other one being Takomi and, 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 and the standoff with the gun. Those are mm-hmm. the two real action scenes in the novel. Mm-hmm. And she, if you listen to what she's saying and thinking and feeling and observing about the world at, in those scenes when she's with Joe, he is, uh, he is sane and she is the opposite. She, she, she keeps going into these sort of, I had an out of body experience states where she's, she, she, she questions her reality. She questions, she starts saying things that make no sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's, it's, it's weird because remember, she goes into the bathroom to try and kill herself and she ends up killing him. Yeah. Right. It's like dicks. You can almost see him. Every time that these two have a scene together, he's casting those Yarrow stocks, reading the thing and saying, aha, I know what I'm going to do next, right? Oh, this will be interesting. Well, he, he says as well, which is quite interesting, is that, that the last decision she makes to go to see Abinson, mm-hmm. um, he wouldn't have had her do that. that he, totally. It, it works so yeah, well. Yeah, that was the I Ching, and he's, he kind of regrets it for some reason. No, no, you, you need to, you need that for the capstone so that we can have the, the revelation of what really is going on. And yeah. this is really metafictional. I mean, without I'd that. I'd love scene, to know yeah. what else he was going to do. <laughs> well, what about, what about the, t- so we, we, we talked about the book within the book, right? Um, the I Ching a little bit. Uh, but also there's the grasshopper lies heavy. Apparently, uh, it's, I, I wrote the note down. It's, it's, I don't know where Dick got the translation, but 
it is from the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, it's from Ecclesiastes 12, uh, 5. And uh, in the King James Version, it doesn't say the grasshopper lies heavy, but here's the line. Also, when they shall be afraid of that which is high, and fear shall be in the way, and the almond tree shall flourish, and the grasshopper shall be a burden, and desire shall fail, because man goeth to his long home, and the mourners go about the streets. It's very obtuse, very hard to figure out what the hell's going on. Mm -hmm. So in context, it's sort of in the end situation like this. But the grasshopper lies heavy. That is, here it says the grasshopper shall be a burden. That even a tiny little thing, right, like a pin, right, or uh, for that's the pin for Tagomi, right, or the book for Juliana, tiny little thing. Are, is going to uh, have a great weight. So uh, that's what I'm sort of getting uh, from that title. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's it's a cool. It sounds cool. The grasshopper lies heavy. Yeah, it's really good. Does that mean right? Uh, but um, notice that it sounds almost like a translation from one language from the English into Japanese and then back into English or something. Because the, when the grasshopper shall be a burden. And I, I looked at all the different translations that were available, and none of them were that exactly. Oh, really? That. Yeah. Huh. So I don't know where Dick got that. I love his it. vision. Yeah, it sounds cool. Now, what do we make about the title of the book itself, The Man in the High Castle? Because I have an idea, but I, I wanted to see what you guys thought. Why is it called that? I didn't really think about it, actually. Well, from, from, from a base point of view, I mean... We have the false idea that that's where Abinson originally lived in, 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 in this vastness of being safe and all having all these traps and stuff around me, which kind of reminds me a bit of, uh, the end of Heinlein's Farnham's Freehold where, mm-hmm. where, 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 far- also set in Colorado, also set in Colorado where they, where at the end they have basically have a death trap route to their mountain fastness. Did he actually have, did I read this in the book or did I just infer it from the title that he was in a kind of fortress of some yes, sort? Yes, he was. Like, yeah, he was, he, he well, was that's right. That's what it says on the dust jacket or something, yeah. right? That Hawthorne Abinson, the author of this book, lives with his wife, uh, Caroline, in the, right? <laughs> something like that, in, in a high castle surrounded by uh, barbed wire and right. machine guns. Right, because Juliana says, well, yeah, we, now you're just living in this house in Cheyenne. you got to protect yourself. Oh, here it is. I got it. I thought you lived in a fortress, Juliana said. Bending to regard her, Hawthorne Abbotson smiled a meditative smile. Yes, we did. But we had to get up to an elevator and I developed a phobia. I was pretty drunk when I got the phobia, but as I recall it and they tell it, I refused to stand up in it because I said that the elevator cable was being hauled up by Jesus Christ. (laughs) We were going all the way and I was determined not to stand. She did not understand. Caroline explained, Hoth has said as long as I've known him that when he finally sees Christ, he's going to sit down. He's not going to stand. That sounds like Heinlein. <laughs> the, 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 the hymn Juliana remembered. So you, you gave up hymn. I, I'm not sure what that's referring to. There might be a hymn about, about, about uh, sitting down or standing up for Christ, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. The hymn yeah. Juliana remembers. So you gave up the high castle and moved back to town, she said. But she, she is not understanding that he's making a joke, right? She is very literal minded. Yeah. She's sort of in this altered state where she can't do jokes. He, he starts saying, 
he he's like a party raconteur guy trying to deflect her with sort of the witticisms and she knows that he's oh, doing that but she's just not accepting it so he says something about about whether her boobs are real right? he says is that just foam under there or tell me about that pin right um and it's not the pin that we that her husband sent to her yeah that's why she's so creepy at the end because she's kind of she is in yeah. an she is in an altered state. Yeah, she's almost state. like a she's in robot sh- trust dramatic shock or something, yeah. right? I, I found the hymn. Wow, this is Oh this really? Is, yep. Brethren we have met together is one of the oldest published American folk hymns. It was first published in eighteen nineteen. The last the last part of the hymn is the one that or the last part of the hymn is the one that's going to be most appropriate. So I'll go. So let us love our God supremely. Let us love each other too. Let us love and pray for sinners till our God makes all things new. Then he'll call us home to heaven. At his table we'll sit down. Christ will gird himself in service with sweet mana all around. That's the hymn he's got to be referring to there about mm-hmm. when he's going to meet Christ, he's going to sit down. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I, I, but he's, he's joking with her. He's not, right. he's not, they never lived in a high castle. Right, I think that that's sort of just like what you put on the dust jacket. To uh, the wife says, carry a gun, right? Carry a weapon. Um, but he's fated to uh, what what he thinks will happen. But I think it's more like a dignity thing. Like you just when somebody comes to your and this happened to to um, when when was uh, when did Stranger in a Strange Land come in come out? 61, I think. Was it? Oh, wow. Well, maybe. Um, so when Dick, and uh, sorry, when uh, Heinlein wrote that book and it was published, um, tons of people started showing up at his house. His house had been, um, I sent you guys the link to it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, his house had been featured in Popular Mechanics, uh, Heinlein's house, mm-hmm. and, you know, showing off all its features. Its description in the book is pretty similar to the one here. It's a single story, you know, uh, flagstone path, um, you know, so, sort of bungalow style. I don't know, whatever style it is. It's very similar to how it's described in the book here. The only difference was the shocking uh, revelation that there's a, a kid's bicycle in the, in the driveway when Juliana comes up to it. Heinlein wanted kids and never had any. So it's like Dick is giving him one. But when he goes, when, when, when Heinlein wrote Stranger in a Strange Land, people showed up on his door all the time. And Heinlein had this, um, way of trying to treat everyone with respect. Uh, so one of the things that Heinlein is different about than a lot of people or one of his things was every race is worthy. Every person is equal dignity sort of thing. So, you know, no matter how people say, you know, he's a fascist because of Starship Troopers, he's not. Um, he has some really weird ideas about sex and uh, um, gender and all sorts of things. But one of the things he totally was, was um, an equal rights for uh, all races and equal dignity even for people who completely disagree with him. Like um, he's in favor of the Vietnam War. Dick's totally against the Vietnam War, right? Um, but they're still friends because Heinlein, you know, says, you know, you're worthy of dignity and I'll treat you with respect even though I disagree with you. 
So when all these hippies start showing up on his door, Heinlein's like lets them in, talks with them, and then uh, hopefully they leave. <laughs> Just the way that when Juliana shows up on on uh, Hawthorne Avinson's door, um, <laughs> they you know the wife sort of she isn't that shocked that somebody's coming to the house, right? When Juliana calls, mm-hmm. yeah. The, and even when she acts completely like crazy, admitting that she's just murdered somebody or killed somebody anyways, um, they don't like call the police and kick her out. Um, it's a very strange, surreal situation. Hmm. Huh. And didn't, didn't, uh, Philip K. Dick get a lot of like pilgrims to his house as well, or was that afterwards? Yeah, I think that's after this. Oh, okay. So maybe he did kind of invite them in this book. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely felt like it. When I was reading it, I was like, okay, he wants me to go to his house and say hi. <laughs> so um, Paul wanted to visit the high castle after uh, uh, to visit um, the grave of... Yeah. Uh, yeah. The next time I, in Colorado, I, I'm going to have to, for sure. My friend who was living in Colorado, I said, well, before you, you know, he's moving back to Vancouver. And before you do that, you should definitely go visit Philip K. Dick's grave. Yeah. <laughs> he did. He went there because he was a fan of Philip K. Dick. Just to stand there and feel that historicity. I, I, exactly. <laughs> yes. to, to feel the historicity. Right. I, if I can't meet the man, I can at least uh, see where he came to rest. Yeah. But it's just, yeah. So... Uh, I, w- I just want to take my final gloss on that title. Okay. Oh yeah. Um, What's your yeah, theory? There is, there is the fortress idea, right? That's dismissed in, um, uh, I think, you know, Hoth- what Hawthorne Abinson says. It's a fake high castle because it's not high. It's a single story bungalow style home with a flagstone path, right? No barbed wire, no machine guns. Um, but rather the high castle, I think, is the, the skull. Is the who is the man in the high castle? Is the mind, the the brain that looks out through the portcullis, through the eyes, through the mouth, right? Ah. And, ah. and the and observer tries to, see, tries to see the world that's out there, but really is trapped within and looking for confirmation in the littlest things and and for Dick not. Ever being satisfied with the, with the, uh, with any of those things. He, when he went to university, which he only did for like three months, um, he took courses in zoology and, uh, I don't know, a few other things and, and philosophy. And, uh, apparently the one sort of idea that stuck with him through all his entire life was, you know, the Plato's idea of the cave. You know, the myth of the cave or the story of the cave? Yeah. You guys know the story? Vaguely. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, it's a story of, uh, there's, uh, Plato says that imagine there's these group of people who have since birth been chained to the floor of a cave. Behind them, their, their necks are, uh, restricted so they can't see behind them. Behind them, uh, are people carrying various pots. Uh, of things or objects on their heads and walking by. And behind those people are some fires. So that the people who've been chained up in this cave can see the shadows of the objects 
on top of these people's heads, moving by on the wall. And as they see this, and because they've never been outside and never even seen each other, they're chained up in such a way, uh, they believe that the shadows on the wall are the reality of the world. If, says Plato, some person of these could manage to escape and go out and see the real world and understand it to be the real world as, as it was, and then were to come back and to tell one of these chained persons who's not ever seen the outside world but only sees seen the reality on the wall, Plato thinks that those persons would not believe this other person who has escaped, the the prisoner who's seen the real world. Mm -hmm. And that is kind of what's going on in this book, too. Right? Juliana says, and I don't believe her when she first says it, that I'm the one of the few. And I, I guess that's what um, Bain says, too, right? How many people realize right? the truth. This, that's yeah. the truth about this world? This is the thing that Philip K. Duck does in every book, right? Is the truth, what's the truth about this world? And very few people realize. In fact, only me, while I'm writing this book, do I realize. And then that sort of not satisfactory thing, he tries again and he tries again and he tries, he's always trying to figure out the world. Mm. And unlike like Lovecraft or Poe, who see the world as sort of a dream, right? How do we know the world's not a dream? How, uh, is living in a dream world not uh, similar to living in our world? He, Dick is not so much about dreams as he is about the real reality. Right. And Looks I think that, that, Yeah, and I think that because of the intertextual thing going on in this book, and just if if I tried to imagine this book written by somebody else, like written by Heinlein or written by Frederick Pohl or something, it would be a completely different book, and or as, you know, Paul, you pointed out, Cyril Kornbluth uh, writing it, right? Completely different book and not the great book that this is. This is, I think, sort of the that peak um, performance of this particular feeling that Dick's done. And I think that's why, even though I love other novels by Dick more, I think that this book resonates with more people. Uh, because it is so great. This, this is the, this is the Philip K. book you can hand to just about any science fiction reader without reservation. I don't think I, I think you can send it to just about anybody well, then, who's read a little bit of history and knows that you know that uh, as they <laughs> as the facts unfold about the reality in when you first start reading this book, you find out the grasshopper lies heavy is an alternate history of our world. You figure it's going to be exactly like our world, but it's not. Yeah. It's even that reality is fake. It's, 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 yep. Here, here's, a, here's a tiny little bit that annoyed me. Um, which audio book did you listen to, Marissa? Hmm. Uh, the one with the guy with the G surname? I can't remember. Oh, okay, so this is the one that had the, the prologue? The little prologue where she basically Yeah, it did, actually, yeah. I, I found that annoying. Like I, don't I didn't really this. listen to it though. I don't like those. <laughs> no, because she says it's yeah. America in 1956. It's like, like I don't need to know this. But yeah, just get on with the book already. I don't, I don't need your little preamble, lady. I know, I know you spend much time writing and polishing it, but 
just let me figure out if I can't figure that out from the novel to bad novel, you need, you don't need to tell me the well, split up between the U.S. Uh, and Germany. Let me tell you, um, that's going to be on the back of the book. The, so this the, that recording, yeah, um, is from a time period. Uh, I think it was from '97 or something, um, which is quite late in the time period for it. But uh, at that time, audiobooks were very uncommon, and so they were the traditional market is the blind, right? So that what they would do is they would start with the reading the back back of the book or the dust jacket and then they would just start the whole they oh. read thing. so she didn't write that oh, that okay. is a standard sort of trope that has disappeared now i didn't uh, i didn't know that okay I'll, yeah. i stand i, so I stand corrected the blackstone one or the new brilliance one they wouldn't have that but it is just the the back of the dust jacket or back of the book okay sort of description Okay, I, I I stand I stand corrected. I don't think it don't think it was really necessary. I don't I don't read the the, the backs of novels are a completely different subject outside the bounds of the Man yeah. High Castle or SFF audio or uh, mm-hmm. audio books. But yeah, so yeah, I I I'll stand corrected before Jesse. Yeah, I think this is a book you can hand to just about anybody. It it is a singular mark of uh, American literature. It's an amazing book. And I, I think, you know, uh, Marissa is saying she needs to read it again to see that. Um, I've read it at least three or four times and I don't reread books generally, not at all. Um, but this one, I can imagine myself in another 10 years totally rereading it because yeah. and do you get it has out that of it depth each yeah. time you read it. Yeah. This, this was my third go around in the first in audio. Yeah, it's got so many layers. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's an amazing book. I think we're done. We're done. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. 